0: And those of you who are joining us online, we are very glad that we get to worship our Lord together with you. If you have a Bible, please find our New Testament reading, James chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. And while you're finding that, I'm going to tell you an interesting little story that many of you will have some familiarity with. It was 1897, and a rumor had begun to circulate that Mark Twain was dead, but he wasn't. And so Twain famously uh, said in an interview that was reported in the New York Journal, quote, the report of my death was an exaggeration. Now, 50 years ago, academics liked To say that religion was on its way out. Uh, It's called the secularization hypothesis. That as our world discovered more and more the knowledge and benefits of science and technology, it became the hypothesis that was taken for granted uh, primarily in sociology departments but then it spread and became a kind of um, universal common sense here in the West that as the knowledge of benefits of science and technology advanced, religion would become obsolete. It's this way of looking at the primitive world as religious and the enlightened world as having outgrown religion. Basically, the idea was built by looking at a tiny and unrepresentative sample of the world, white people in Western Europe and North America, and looking at them, noticing that they had grown increasingly less religious as they became increasingly more sophisticated in their scientific understanding, and, say, and extrapolating from this to say, you know, science is going to displace dogma. Reason is going to replace revelation. But as it turns out, the report of the death of religion has been greatly exaggerated. As societies have grown more modern, they have not become less religious. The secularization hypothesis has been proven incredibly wrong. That as our world has grown richer and better educated, it has not become less religious. This has caught many people off guard. 9-11 was this thundering reminder to the sophisticated West that much of the world is still religious. And you cannot reduce issues in our world to something that carves out a space apart from religion. In fact, the world we're living in is going through one of the greatest periods of scientific progress and the building of wealth, while it is also going through a religious boom. Islam is surging. Orthodox Judaism is growing among young people. And the growth of Christianity is surpassing all the other faiths. And this morning, we come to a passage of scripture that was written in a context very much like ours. It was written in a context that was very religious and pluralistic. And there were lots of different religions. And so it was a group of people who lived in an environment where they would often have a religion that was different from their neighbors. And they were confronted, like many of us, with the idea and the thought, how do you know your religion matters or your religion is valuable, or your religion actually has a claim to saying anything that's true. And so notice in our passage, James chapter 1, verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious. And so what happens in verses 26 and 27 is that we are given three questions to determine the worth and the value of a religion. Or you can personalize it. Three questions to determine the worth and the value of your religion, of your own religious commitment. Number one, do you have control over your speech? Number two, do you help vulnerable people? And number three, do you resist the stains of the world? Let's take each of these in turn. First of all, notice verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives himself, this person's religion is worthless. Now, you can't get much straightforward, more straightforward than that, can you? Remember, the author of this letter is James, the brother of Jesus. And you can hear the echo of Jesus' teachings here in James, Remember our gospel reading from a little earlier in the service, Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. Jesus says it even more starkly, even more harshly. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every tweet. Every Facebook post, every Facebook thumbs up, every careless word that they speak, Jesus says, for by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. You can see here that Jesus is telling us the way we talk, whether it's online or with our enemy. Or with our best friend. The way we talk. The things we say. The words that come out of our mouth. Show us what's really in our heart. And God's going to judge you for that. That's Jesus. in Jesus, this, this person that the whole world. Not the whole world. But so much of our world wants to make a hero out of. And a mentor out of. Here he clearly says. Your words will lead to your justification or your condemnation. That your speech is an accurate indicator of who you really are at your core. Now, it's interesting. Where did Jesus get this from? Where did James get this from? How in the world could they come to the place to say, your words matter that much? We we like to say the opposite. We like to say to people, I don't care what you say. I want to know how you live. And Jesus is here saying, oh no, what you say matters. What you say really matters. It matters so much that you're going to be condemned if you don't speak in the right way. Where, Where are Jesus and James getting this from? They're getting it from the very first page of the Bible. Think about this for just a moment. On the first page of the Bible, we meet the major characters of the story the Bible tells. And the story the Bible tells has three major characters in it. God, the creator, who is the redeemer, humans, and creation. Creation isn't the platform, the stage on which the story plays out. It in and of itself is a major character. And the first thing we're told about the major character called God in the story the Bible tells, the first thing we're told about him is that he makes stuff. And how does he make stuff? With his words. Genesis chapter 1 verse 3. Just three verses into the Bible. It says. And God said. Let there be light. And there was light. It's through his speech. It's through his word. That God created all things. Including humans. And then we're told. And a little bit later in chapter 1. That when God makes humans. He makes them in his image. He makes them like himself. So what do we know God is like? We know that God's words count. By the time you get to the creation of humans, what you've seen God doing is using his words to create things. And so then he makes humans like him. So what are you going to expect is one of the first things humans are going to do. Use their words. In fact, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 19, it says, So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The first task God accomplishes in the Bible is creation of life through his word. The first task humans do in the Bible is name things with their words. So, from the very beginning of the Bible, speech is at the heart, powerful speech is at the heart of who God is, of what humans are made in His image. So, when you get to the book of Proverbs, which very likely was one of James's favorite books in the Bible, because Proverbs. James writes more like a book of Proverbs than anybody else in the Bible does. And in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21, it says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruits. I first came to see the seriousness of speech in the summer after my junior year of high school. As a young child, I committed my life to follow Jesus Christ. When I was a freshman and sophomore in high school, I got very dumb. I thought that I could live both ways. I thought that I could be loyal to Jesus and loyal to a lot of fun that the world was offering that I wanted to participate in. And I tried to live in both worlds my freshman and sophomore year. And at the end of my, or my sophomore and my junior year, and at the end of my junior year, I came to see how foolish that was. It had got me into a lot of bad places, and I'd done a lot of bad things. And I told God I was sorry, and I recommitted my life to following him and to walking in his ways. And I made a habit that I would get up 30 minutes or so before I needed to every morning. And I would use that extra time in the morning to read the Bible and to pray. And every week, I would memorize a passage of Scripture And early on, the passage of scripture that I memorized one week was Ephesians chapter 4 verse 29. It says this, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what's helpful for building others up that it may benefit all who listen. So I memorized that verse, and I also had the habit that whatever verse I was memorizing, I would think about my life and figure out how I could Apply it to my life. And it didn't take very much thinking. Because me and my friends had developed the habit that the way we hung out with each other and had fun was we cut each other down. And that, sort of like some of you with Facebook, um, you love to pick on people who think differently than you. And you've developed a speech habit of calling people idiots or fools or tearing them down based on their weaknesses. Well, just like some of you, I developed that habit. Me and my friends just predated Facebook, so we just did it to each other's face. Um, and I had memorized this verse, and so it, the, the application was really simple. Don't do that anymore. Cut it out. So for two weeks of my life, a thing occurred that was a miracle. I became a mute. I didn't have anything to say because all of my talking, all of my speech habits had become speech habits of picking on people and cutting on people in order to have fun. And then after a couple of weeks, I began to redevelop a speech habit. And I began to think and find ways that I could have fun by not tearing people down. Now, I'm not saying that I'm perfect at this. In fact, I have backslidden. And I um, have developed some really bad habits in my speech over the last few years, primarily with my family. And when I'm stressed or when I'm frustrated or when I'm angry... I use words that hurt them. And what I'm saying is that this is serious. This is very serious business. What about you? What is your speech like? Listen again to verse 27. If anyone thinks he's religious but does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. You see, in Christianity, we have not only the guideline of speaking well, but we have access to the power of our Creator to remake us, to give us His Holy Spirit, to enable us to control the wild beast of our tongue. You were made in the image of God. Whether you like it or not, your words are so powerful, God is going to judge you or justify you based on them. You were made to speak life into people. This is right at the heart of what it means to be made in God's image. To call life into people, whether they are Republican or Democrat or Libertarian or country or city or your color or a different color or rich or poor or whoever they are. you were made to speak life, do you? Or do you gossip and grumble? Do you boast? Do you watch so much social media that you have learned the habit that you can talk like our president? And that's evil. The way he talks makes his religion worthless. And just because it's in the name of a good cause in no way justifies it. Or maybe you're on the other side of the spectrum. And you've developed the habit in a more progressive crowd to so quickly and easily name your president's problems. Do you watch so much social media that you've developed the habit of tearing the people down who vote differently than you? One of the most unreligious things about our current environment is this. James didn't pick abortion. To put on the litmus test, he picked speech ethics. Speech ethics matter to the king. Abortion matters too, but he picked speech ethics. Do you control your tongue so that the way you talk is godly? Is it filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control? And no one gets a pass when the cause is justified for language that lacks those qualities. So if, that's, if you've fallen into a bad habit here, if you are not in control of your tongue, repent. Like the song we sang, he will take our sins, he will cancel our debt, he will forgive us. Confess your sin to God and ask God to give you the gift of His Spirit so that you can tame your tongue. Now, that's the first question to determine the value and the worth of your religion. The second question comes up in the next verse, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. All right, so when James wrote this letter, somewhere in the middle of the first century, most people were not poor. And they weren't rich. Most people had just enough to cover the basic necessities of life. They were peasants and artisans. Now, certainly by today's standards, we would consider them poor. But that's called relative poverty, where poverty is based on its relationship to somebody else's state. Another definition of poverty is called absolute poverty. Are you in danger of dying because you're poor? Who cares how you compare to others? But do you have enough to eat today? That's the definition of poverty James was working with here. Most people didn't aspire to wealth. Advertising is this modern invention that has made all of us think that enough is not enough. But it wasn't always that way. The majority of the people in the world when James was writing had enough and that was all right. But there was this group called the poor. Now, the poor... These people lived life in danger. They lacked the security that money provides. And so the poor, this was the group of people who lived right at the edge of losing their lives. And the brutal reality is when this group of people woke up any given morning, they had three options if they wanted to live. In order to live, they had to either beg or steal or sell themselves into slavery. Those were the only way they could live. Now, there were four groups of people in the Bible that filled this category the poor. They were widows, orphans, undocumented citizens called resident aliens, and day laborers. Those are the four categories of people whose life was right at the edge. That at any given day, they had to either beg, steal, or sell themselves into slavery in order to live. So here is James picking from that category. And he's saying, religion that's worth something, that's pure in God's eyes, it's the kind of religion that makes you visit in their affliction the poor. Now that word affliction, technically it means people distressed economically, and because of their economics, they face injustice. So what he's saying here is he's saying, look, there is a group of people in our world who don't have enough money or social standing to secure justice. They can't get a fair shake. And you need to visit them in their affliction. Not pontificate from it about it from afar. But you have to come up next to them. Now where did James get this from? He got this from Jesus. He got this from the royal law. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus, his first sermon, we find this recorded in Luke chapter 4. In his first sermon, Jesus said, alright, here's what I'm coming to do. I'm going to preach the gospel and I'm going to set free the captive, and I'm going to, those who are blind, give them back their sight, and I'm declaring the year of the Lord's favor. And when he said that, the year of the Lord's favor, he's quoting from the Old Testament, the jubilee year, the year where every debt was canceled, and everybody who had fallen through the safety net was given a new stake in the production side of the economy. Who needs justice in our society? Who is the orphan and the widow, the day laborer, and the resident alien? Who is it that their social standing, our history, and economics is putting them in a position where they can't get a fair shake? It is the African-American community in America. 250 years of slavery, 90 years of Jim Crow, 60 years of separate but equal, 35 years of racist housing policy, until we reckon with our compounding moral debts to the African American community in America, America will never be whole. Now, there are other communities that are vulnerable, absolutely. J.D. Vance, in his remarkable book, Hillbilly Elegy, well documents the plight of the Appalachian community. But the point at hand is that each of ourselves must visit. That means come up next to the people who, who are vulnerable to injustices. Are you doing that? Here's one way to think about it. Three ways you can visit the vulnerable. One, live next to them, buy a house next to them, move next to them through the place you live. Number two, get a job that brings you deeply in touch with people who are vulnerable. And if, none of, if those two things aren't true in your life, if you don't live near the vulnerable or you don't work with the vulnerable, then the third thing is you have to find a way to shoehorn it into your life. Nobody gets an out from this. All of us must visit the poor in their affliction. You see, we we bring our gifts to the world primarily as neighbors, as workers, and citizens. So in one of those ways, you need to be coming up next to those who are in affliction and need your work. So how about it? How are you doing when it comes to the poor and needy? To those who suffer injustice, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their afflictions. If you have come to see that where you live or what your job is or how you spend your weekends rarely allows you to have deep contact so that you can form real friendships with those who are vulnerable, then you need to repent. You need to say to God, I'm sorry. You need to feel bad about it. You need to feel guilty about it because you are guilty. But then, like the song we sang, we bring that to Jesus and he takes our real guilt. He takes it from us and he forgives us. And then you need to ask him for his spirit to give you creativity. How can you do this in your life, in your community? How can you really visit the orphan and the widow in their affliction? All right. So that's the second question to determine the value, the worth of your religion. The third question comes up at the end of verse 27, a religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And the third question, the third issue, keep yourself unstained from the world. What James is talking about here when he says the world is that part of our world that is at odds with the ways and the will of Jesus Christ. We use the word world in two different ways. Sometimes we use it about creation, nature. We're going to sing at the end of our service, this is my father's world. And that's talking about this beautiful valley we live in and all the flora and the fauna and the mountains and the soil and the rivers and all of this natural creation belongs to God. But the word world is sometimes used in another way. It's sometimes, like I grew up in a culture that said that's just worldly, And what we meant by that was that's not the way God would want it. It's a negative word. And it comes from a part of the Bible that uses it sometimes negatively. So that's the way it's being used here. We pray this prayer at the beginning of our service when we confess our sins. We ask God to help us delight in his will and walk in his ways. But there's so much in our world that pushes and pulls us from delighting in his will and walking in his ways. And all of those temptations and pressures and ways of thinking and acting that stain us into a different way of thinking and acting than Jesus would have us do, that's what he's referring to. So we've seen that we have proof that the spirit of the real true God is at work in our lives if we are drawing down on the power of that spirit to develop self-control in our speech and to move out of our comfort zone and to do the risky, hard, heartbreaking work of visiting the vulnerable in their affliction and working with them and for them. And here we see a third characteristic of real, genuine Christianity is when your life is wholly devoted to God. You are completely loyal to Him. And you're not half-hearted about Christianity. That's what I'd done my uh, sophomore and junior year in high school. I had decided I would give my heart to Jesus and I would give my heart to the temptations that Jesus told me to stay away from. And I lived this divided life. There are so many ways that living in this world can stain us. Janelle and I recently began watching a series on Netflix, a TV show, that we really enjoyed. And um, it was a little bit bad. And then it got badder and badder. And one night Janelle said, that's just worldly. I'm not watching that anymore. And me and my sophisticated Christianity, I could keep watching it. And so I did. And it, she was right. And we had already paid for the whole season. So surely we should keep watching it. But it was staining us. So you know what I had to do? Repent. Tell God. This is baloney. This is trash. I'm sorry that I've been watching this. Forgive me. And then I had to change. Change. And let that money just go out the window because that was better than being stained by the. What about you? When was the last time you changed a behavior or a habit because you recognized it was worldly? Is there anything you won't watch? Or are you so sophisticated that you can watch anything? Is there any music you will not listen to? Or are you so sophisticated that you like the beat and you don't really think about the words? When you read through the book of James, you see that there is a stain this world will put on you and you've got to resist it. Are you growing more pure? Are you resisting the stains of the world? Are you resisting the crass materialism of our society? Are you resisting the immorality of our culture? Are you resisting the terrible speech habits Of our current political landscape? Are you resisting the lust and the sexual immorality? Are you resisting the environmental destruction that our consumerist culture justifies? If you are stained by the world, repent. Confess your shortcomings to God. Ask him for the gift of his spirit so that you can resist the bombardment to your eyes and ears and thoughts and imaginations that happens to those of us who refuse to abandon the world. Because resisting the stain does not mean leaving the world. Clearly in the book of James they're living in the world and their struggle is to resist the world not by abandoning it but by drawing down on the power of the spirit to resist the stain while they live in it. Okay, so there it is. Three questions to determine the value, the worth of your religion. Do you have self-control over your speech? Do you help the vulnerable? Do you resist the stains of the world? Now, I suspect many of us can find one of these things that we're really keyed into. Maybe like me, you grew up in a community that was tuned into holiness. And you know that the way some people dress is unholy. And you know that the things some people watch is unholy. And you know that there are ways of talking that is unholy. And you know that there are ways of acting that are unholy. Maybe you grew up in a church like me that made you attuned to that. If so, give thanks. What an incredible gift. I am so grateful that the Baptist church I grew up in made me deeply aware that God is holy and He calls me to holiness. There is nothing about that that was bad for me. I'm so grateful for that. Or maybe you came from another place in time. Maybe you're a part of a generation that is woke. And you are deeply attuned to the plight of the poor and the environment and the minority. Praise God for that. James chapter 1 says, Every good gift comes from God. Where do you think the clarity of sight came from to see that wiping out the tops of mountains is a terrible thing? That's a gift that God has given a current young generation, and you should be grateful for that. But we must also recognize that these things cannot be your religion. See, that's the trick. It's all three. Think of these things your speech, your holiness, and your help for the vulnerable. Think of those as spokes on a wheel. The only way to keep them balanced is a strong hub. And if the hub is not Jesus Christ, social justice will become a religion that justifies wickedness. And if the hub is not Jesus Christ, your holiness will terrorize others. And if your hub is not Jesus Christ, you'll pick one of these and you'll become so committed to it that it'll twist and distort you from being a true human. That's the remarkable, Jesus is so powerful. Jesus alone can be the one thing in your life. Anything else that becomes the one thing will twist you. But only when Jesus is the one thing Do you suddenly integrate everything else and become whole and balanced and a gift to this world? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The faith in Jesus is what you hold to and the social justice, speech ethics, and holiness are the spokes that tie into that. May the Lord bless us. May we be the kind of church that shines like the stars in the heavens in the way we talk, in our holiness, and in our visiting of the poor and and the broken in their affliction. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.